This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. to Omo, the romance and reality of violin making. We are at your service and in the service of Omo Bono, least liked son of Antonio Stradivari, who was good enough, damn it. He stood in the shadow of his father and we say to all of you, stand in the shadow no more. (laughs) You are good enough to be an Omo sapien. You belong to the tribe. Even if you are not a violin maker, you are a citizen here. Welcome. We dub you fellow filmmakers for the day. I love this. It's very heavy. I am your host, violin slinger, Rosie Deloach, here with my bench monkeys co-host, Chris Jacoby, of his own fame. Present. And Jerry Lynn, lord of the chalk and master of the robots. (laughs) Together we clasp hands and declare we have the power. Lord of the chalk? Am I supposed to, like, I don't know, throw chalk at people? I am the Lord of the Chalks, and he fit ye bars wherever ye may go. Chris, what is your message of hope as received from St. Omobono of the fair city of Cremona? Do no harm, but take no shit. Jerry, what is your message of pain from the robots? <laughs> Smoke them if you got them. We have the finest show for you today. It is a pairing of Ebony and Willow with fine hide glue sandwiched in between. And we invite you to dine with us. Rosie, have you been drinking? This is amazing. Who writes this crap? I have been writing more. It's so so great. Yeah, no, please always do this. I sit in my little room and I write and I write and I write and I want things to be better. And this is what I'm doing with my time. Please don't cut any of this this banter out because I'm loving it. I I love it. Rodney Moore with Learning Trade Secrets out of Ashland, Ohio. Rodney, hi. Oh, how are you today? I'm great. What's the best way to start bow winding on the stick? Basically, what I do is I, I take some of the blue painter's tape and I'm going to uh, make a little winding around where I want the, the, uh, the silver winding to start. Then I'll take my silver wire and wrap it around the stick two or three times have something to hold on to and then I'll just pull it around until I get to the bottom facet and then I'll cross over and then do two more turns and then that should hold the wire well enough that you can then pull the tail in and get it right down the center of the bottom facet. Pretty simple little practice but uh, once you get it it's piece of cake. And are you one of those people that ever use soldering? I'd solder underneath the thumb grip. If I have uh, sometimes cellist and bass players can tug at the wire a little bit. So um, I might a little dot of solder right at the bottom just to keep it from coming loose for sure. Guys, make sure you check out learningtradesecrets.com regularly for updates and for classes coming out in 2021. If you need to know more about advanced setup, about bow reharing or bow restoration, if you need to learn about varnishing, they're the place to go. Again, that's learningtradesecrets.com. Welcome back, my friends. Thank you. Guys, uh, what's on your bench? 
scrolls with weird holes in them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got a bunch of weird stuff on my bench. I'm doing French marquetry with Frank Straza. He came out to pick up his uh, cello and he brought all these beautiful handmade things and is showing me how to do the technique that he inlaid my name in mm-hmm. rosewood into maple and then set it into my bench. And uh, as all great things in woodworking are, it's deceivingly simple. It's just about keeping your your hand in the right place next to your heart while you work at an angle. And I'm, I'm really loving it. Okay, so Frank got on a plane in the era of COVID mm-hmm. and came to your house to pick up the cello. And he bought you- a ticket for the cello to go home with him. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased to have him here. So, you know, I handed him, he's, he's made a few instruments, of course, and I handed him my favorite rough arching gouge and a viola top that's ready to go for a client. And he had it practically perfectly rough arch ready for, for being refined and, you know, only two minutes longer than it took me. I can't let him win, but Holy cow. dude's <laughs> unstoppable. Oh my goodness. What's on your bench, Rosie? Not enough. I'm still trying to uh, have time at home being mom and run a business. And it's the, like the summer crazy season. A lot of it's like, get this rental done, get this rental done, get this rental done. That that's uh, the majority of what I'm doing. Can you guys hear the explosions going off behind Jerry? My whole neighborhood is like a war zone. We're recording this uh, on independence day in the evening. So it is, just the smell of black powder is just wafting all over all over me right now. It's crazy. Well, cheers that we're all still alive. Cheers. Um, cheers. Guys, I am researching how to make fuse sticks. Um, I have to buy special chemicals and I've got to like cook them. It feels like learning how to make varnish. And uh, I'm very excited to uh, I, because I want to get precision like fuse lines going for my uh projects oh, for your art you've been doing. Yeah. my my fire sculptures uh but I, I i want them to burn at a more even rate so i'm gonna start making fuses so do we get worried when you start writing a manifesto yeah i've written yeah. manifestos oh crap so uh so some news and announcements guys um all right this is way late this is like two months late by the time this airs uh and I apologize for not having my act together, Ian. Uh, I was featured on Ian Hates Guitars on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It was so freaking fun. This guy basically makes you like go through your shop and open all your drawers and look at all your tools and uh, just talk about what it's like doing the job you do. He, he does a lot of guitar stuff, but he branched out and um, did a tour of my shop and saw all my little specialty tools and if you want to see how gross and junky my (laughs) drawers are you check it out no way i watched it and not only did did you look smart and interesting but i was like she definitely cleaned all this shit up first yeah i I did not i did not (laughs) i cleaned it all up afterwards because i was embarrassed because he made you open everything right (laughs) on Uh, but then uh, he does this thing called what's your widget. It's like, what's your like go-to tool. And I was really trying to overthink it. I was trying to like find something really specialty. And then I was like, no, 
Soundpost, the thing that I use every day, the thing that I have mm-hmm. mastered for 12 years, setting up a soundpost. It makes me look smart. I'm going to set up soundpost. It's post. this Q-tip I clean my ear with. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you set a soundpost. I set yeah. a soundpost. Uh, got it up my first try. So if you want to see me do that, go check out Ian Hates Guitars on YouTube. Um, I was on Sophia Vittori's uh, Instagram live series for the folks from the Oberlin Summer Workshop for Violin Makers. And uh, we got together, the three of us, at the, the Summer Workshop for Violin Restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was fun. It was a really international cast as she did it three a day, night after night. She put in a lot of work and it was fun. It was and I made her sing a song. Yeah, it was, it yeah. was enjoyable too. It was a lot of really good content yeah. there. And those are still up. If you guys aren't following Sophia, go follow Sophia Vittori, V-E-T-T-O-R-I. And check out, I mean, cats that have been in the business and good at it longer than I've been alive. Um, And then a lot of our our contemporaries as well. She's delightful. Um, She, again, she put in so much work. I have to say, I watched several other ones. And people were the most chatty uh, watching you. I don't know what you bring out in the crowd, bro. I got her singing. I amped them up. <laughs> yeah. um, Jerry, do you have any any uh, news and announcements? Because Rosie and I did. Yeah, no, I'm not that cool. You know, it's... Uh, next time. Next time. <laughs> Nobody interviews the weird guy with his, his crazy stuff, you know. I do. Oh, <laughs> oh, we do. We do have one more announcement, Jerry. So uh, we, as a team, have been on the hunt, and um, you know, this year with the uncertainty in our economy, we've had a hard time with sponsors. But we did find some new ad revenue, uh, a selection of new advertisers uh, to get us through the end of the year, and we are very happy to bring you to your first ad. Enjoy. Heard about CBD, but not sure how to fit it into your practice routine? Introducing Chillin' Sons Rosin, the only rosin made with cannabidinol or CBD. Use the power of CBD to help you achieve without those pesky panic attacks. Are you getting too worked up practicing for that first chair spot? Unwind a bit with Chillin' Sons Rosin. Just apply like regular rosin to your bow and maybe to that knot in your neck too. Maybe to your fallen arches. Oh, chill and sun's rosin. Also mixes with water, so pour yourself a glass. Mix it in your bubble bath. You will beat Trevor in the tryouts. And even if you don't, life is bigger than this, man. There's a pandemic and civil unrest, so let go of some of your performance anxiety with chill and sun's rosin. Coming soon, specialty Goldflex Goldschlager Rosin. Guys, we're going to do a little history story of Yay, history. the hot bow action here with my buddy Jerry Lynn. Hey, Hi, Jerry. Did, did you say hot bow action? Hot bow action. Well, I'm not a bow guy, but I am bow curious. So I guess. You're the perfect fit for this. <laughs> I hope so. I want to credit Linda Lespe out of Sydney, Australia, for volunteering to research for us. I am so happy to be returning to historical stories. Haven't had much time for it. And to have a little bit more uh, depth to provide you guys makes me super happy. So, Jerry. Rosie. 
we're in France in the mid-1700s. And there's no revolution yet, but there is a muttering. There's a general dissatisfaction of the people. I have no idea what that's like. Do you know what that's like? I, You know, I, I have no clue. <laughs> no clue. No, it bears no resemblance to today. Okay. Uh, bow making, for the most part, it was a side job to instrument making. It's, it's an accessory, like making a tailpiece or a bridge for a violin. It's not standardized. It's still experimental. And uh, a lot of bows come from this one area in Paris, the privileged area. You've got some stuff to say about the privileged area, Jerry. First, don't ever tell a modern bow maker that they're making an accessory. Holy cow, that's a bad idea. <laughs> Privilege sounds like it's this this great thing, but it was probably an area where there was more freedom to do a trade that either wasn't under the purview of the guild system or there was no guild for that particular thing, such as bow makers. You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think there's this area in Dallas um, where a lot of stuff comes direct from China and it's mm -hmm. like really, really cheap rent uh -huh. and um, not like not the nicest buildings, but like you can a lot of people who do resale can go get stuff from those places and then they will sell them in their cute little shops. Oh, neat. Yeah. Yeah. It might have been like that. I, I don't know. This is one area where I'd love to know more about the, the guild system in, in Paris and the rest of Europe. Maybe that's something we can save for a future episode. You are in luck. We are going to talk about guild Whoa. systems Yay. more in the future. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you could sell whatever you want there, but you are supposed to mark that it's from that area. Um, so, you know, people who are in the guild systems, they are... Uh, thought of as more reputable, I guess, at the time. Um, and then people in this area, they um, could sometimes be like uneducated, poor, uh, the Jewish people, um, et cetera, et cetera, pro Protestant, Protestant, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, they were protesting. Yes. <laughs> um, and at any time, the authorities could raid your place. And if your products were not marked then your stuff could be confiscated. Ooh. So they are trying to put some regulation, even though it's a privileged area. Um, but then we have the revolution, and it upsets everything, right down to who could make what, and if they were allowed to use different materials to make it. Again, more about guilds later. And uh, there's this one guy in particular. His name is Cannabis. Are you sure about that? I'm not sure about that. <laughs> if you're talking about cannabis, you got the wrong co-host. <laughs> now, did you say there is like another way to define this? Vaguely thinking back in my mind to the the horror that is the Norton anthology of Western music. I think you mean Johann Christian Cannabich. Okay. Who was uh, one of the, I'll say, leading forces of developing violin technique uh, and working with composers in the Mannheim Court Orchestra, okay. along with a guy named Wilhelm Kramer. Yes, yes. And the, Wilhelm Kramer is a fan of this bow that gets known as the Kramer-style bow and the bow stick. You're going to see in a little bit here as we move from convex to concave, it's all about more power. All about more power. And more, more dynamic ranges. Uh, yeah. These venues were getting 
bigger composers were were thinking about things like greater dynamic ranges and string tension was all over the map it was um, tension was getting higher we've got overwound strings and we need to compete with maybe some rowdy crowds so if we are looking at bows for stringed instruments over time you've got earlier bows looking more like bow and arrow style bows with a convex arch stick and then you've got a lot of variety. You've got bows with different amounts of hair and different lengths of bows and different arches and different weights. We've got bows that don't loosen or tighten. You just press against the hair with your thumb to get tension on the hair. We've got bows that start with the hair loose and you have to clip the frog into the bow in between the hair and the stick. And on a warm, humid day, if the hair is too loose still, you just shove some extra leather in between that hair and that frog. You got Done. it. Yes. But like Jerry said, we're in the quest for more power. And uh, we've got the Corelli bow, which is super flat and straight in the stick. It's not convex. And the Tort and the Kramer bows just go ahead and invert that curve to a concave bow like we know today. And it's not as much of a camber as what you would find in a modern stick. And it's, sure. it, it's distributed a little bit differently. I'm sure it is because mm. <laughs> it's still a creative work in progress. It is. It is. Mad respect for the bow. It is. History is not a neat and tidy package. So if we're going from concave to flat to convex, all that space you had for hair when you're like, when you're pressing into the strings, you don't have much extra space to work with. So that like precision that you need, like how tight you can make the hair, like getting it just right is becoming really important. It is. What's also changing is thoughts on bow hold and where the bow should be held. And we're talking about France and uh, there was a lot of stuff happening in France at the time as far as uh, developing bow holds that were more in line with a, a greater range of, of bowing techniques mm -hmm. and a greater range of, 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 of dynamic range. So, uh, you might have had the bow that was being held a little bit higher up on the stick. Your hand is moving now closer to the frog. And uh, the development of what we would now call the the modern Franco-Belgian bow grip was just in its infancy, with uh, particularly with a dude named Rudolf Kreutzer. That is... If you're a violinist, you know who Rudolf Kreutzer is, and you either love him or you, you hate him. <laughs> so I uh, am remembering like old Renaissance paintings and people are holding those bows right in the middle of the bows. Yeah. And look also where they're holding the instrument at too. It's, it's yeah, right it's, in their chest. <laughs> it's, it's off the shoulder. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of evidence when you start looking at um, violin necks that still exists. Our buddy Ben Hebert did a really great article on his blog about original necks and you see the fingerboard and nut are like practically jammed into the peg box. There's not a whole lot of space between the end of the fingerboard and the chin or, or I believe what the French would call the col de poule. And so it was designed so that the hand was flatter and you're supporting the instrument more with the palm. And so we have this giant shift from the instruments being lifted up more onto the shoulder. The bow grip is moving from uh, higher up on the stick to closer to the frog. And it's all about more power, more technique. More power. More power. There's also a cultural shift, more of a philosophy of disposable bows. Yeah, the bow was not designed to be something, unfortunately, bow guys, 
my bow friends out there, it was an accessory at the time. It, it wasn't quite on equal footing yet. They uh, are treating it the way the 12 year olds that rent from me like to do. So covered in stickers <laughs> and snot. And uh-huh, and just tightened for years. Tightened for yeah. years. Yeah. So how do we advance past disposable bows? How do we have a bow that lasts and can loosen and tighten easily? Tell me, Rosie. This is a big part of why we, um, a lot of people just talk about modern bows being tort style bows. The tort family. One of the great performers of the day was Viotti, who had a Strad violin, the very one I'm making a bench copy of this year. Viotti's violin was a gift from Catherine the Great, which fueled a lot of speculation about their relationship. We think Viotti got to know the Tort brothers in the 1780s while he was busy being the local hotness in Versailles, while founding an opera house with Marie Antoinette's hairdresser, Back when they would put miniature ships and birds and bird cages in hair, like you do. That's a weird. E- even I'm sorry, I can't view history with the with the lens it needs to be with that thing. But yeah, I, how can you take somebody with a bird cage in their hair seriously? Come on. I love it. How can you take someone with pink hair seriously? Ah, uh, that's different. You're not putting <laughs> a animal cage in your hair. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to go back to purple, I think. I think it suits you better. Oh, thank you. And since we're talking about bows and we're getting into Pernambuco, I mean, purple is is the is the color of money when it comes to, you know, to bow makers. Yes, yes. Okay, so Nicholas Pierre Tort married a widowed clockmaker and inherits all of the clockmaking paraphernalia as well. And the screw and eyelet that we use today that goes Inside all bows, it's not far removed from the clockmaking parts that were just laying around. Clockmaking at the time was some pretty darn high-tech technology. These were the, the mechanical wizards of their day, and it was expensive. That's right. It was a big deal to make, make a big clock that kept a whole city on the same time. It was a big deal to keep it running. It was like, I think it would be like today's um, IT people. Yeah, or, or even more like software engineers or, I don't know, wizards of their day. But screws were terribly expensive. Yeah. So you've got these parts and then you've got people who are into music building something that is considered in many ways disposable. Mm-hmm. Now, Nicholas had some sons who took up the business as well, in particular, Francois Xavier Tort. He tried his hand at clockmaking, but he didn't like the pay he was getting. So maybe it's not like today's IT jobs. And he decided <laughs> to give bow making a try. Yeah, I think I'll go make more money in music. No. Yeah, nobody says that ever. <laughs> he, probably had, he probably had the sickness, too, at the time. <laughs> he must have. So he came up with other innovations, he made the bow more balanced and started using Pernambuco. Yes, that wood that came all the way from the other side of the world. He's now known as one of the greatest bow makers of all time. And he was also suspected of being illiterate. Well, that's some bow makers I know too. I'm just kidding. <laughs> totally not. Most bow makers I know are like hyper, hyper intelligent and super well-read. So I apologize, bow friends. When we talked to Matt Wheeling, Uh, in a moment. 
he was just mind-blowingly smart. It was oh, great. he's he's crazy. One of my favorite Matt. I've not known Matt for very long. Uh, this this past summer at Oberlin Restoration, he was one of the one of the instructors for the the bow side, and I took Elion LeBlanc, who was one of the instructors on the violin side, to check into the Oberlin Hotel. And Matt came along too. I was making sure that they were both being taken care of. And Elion steps up to the guest register and uh, the the person behind the counter hears her name and starts talking to her in French. <gasps> they do the entire check-in in French. Not to, be oh. un- not to be undone, Matt steps up right behind her and does the exact same thing. <laughs> I love it. It was fantastic. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So another little side note about Pernambuco, when that starts coming into use. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not something that just bow makers got into. This wood got very popular with a lot of places like people who were making furniture. When supply ships at the time were sailing to South America, emptying their hull of their cannons and their guns, you know, the stuff you need to settle down. And they're slaves. Let's not sugarcoat mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Nasty business. Um, yeah. So they they uh, they needed something heavy and dense to bring the ships back so they wouldn't capsize. So they found this super heavy, dense Brazil wood, Pernambuco, and loaded up the boat. So, Jerry, we started with a bow that was less powerful, a little bit more unwieldy thought of as only a one-time use. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went to a bow that tightens itself, plays loud without nearly as much work. It's lighter. It's more consistent through the length of the stick. Well, it's definitely not lighter. Oh my gosh. Did I get it? Wait, no, no, no. There were some of the iterations that were heavier. Yeah, but even those, a lot of those are lighter by modern standards. And having that dense wood, that was what allowed it to be lighter. Yeah, and Pernambuco has some really interesting tonal properties. It accentuates frequencies that you want to be accentuated, and it dampens frequencies that you don't want to be accentuated. Really? Yeah. That's why it's so hard to find a replacement. That's why you get that sweeter, mellower tone? Is that what people are getting? Let's dive into a little bit here of, of, of a widely known alternative, is which is carbon fiber. Carbon fiber, at least in my experience, tends to be either neutral or bright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you've got Pernambuco, which has this wonderful range of of being a lot of different things. And mm-hmm. it creates really wonderful colors yeah. that are available to the violinist. Whereas other woods, um, you know, we haven't quite found just the right thing if we need a replacement for it. You know, when I am talking to my clients that are buying their first decent bow, usually Mm -hmm. like high school. And I'm explaining to them and their parents, the difference between the synthetic bows versus the wood bows. I tell them it's digital versus analog, which makes perfect sense to me and the parent. And then the kid has no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I liken it to cars, you know, there's some cars that are, uh, you know, when you're just starting out driving, you don't want the Ferrari. Mm-hmm. You want the 04 Honda Civic, you know, that you can't screw up driving. It just does what you want it to do. Whereas a high performance sports car, it would be in trouble if you gave that to a beginner driver. Yeah. Which is why you don't let 
um, kids handle Matt Wheeling's bows. <laughs> well, even yeah. in the realm of wooden bows, it's kind of interesting to see what clients are interested in at what point in their career. A lot of times younger players, when they get into that, that first nice wooden stick, they want something that's, that's on the stiffer side. But as they progress as a violinist, a lot of times you see those same people later on wanting to have something that's more flexible. Is it because they can deal with more like minutia of, of small changes in bowing? Yes. I think okay. that's part to do with it. There's, there's a wide variety of things why they say they want to get into something that's a little more flexible. And that, that goes all over the map too. Even historically, if you look at, you know, where bows were being made, when, you know, some bows from 19th century England are described as being whippy, mm-hmm. you know, they've got no strength to them whatsoever, but, uh, people like them at the time. And there's some people that still do. Well, guys, that is a story of how we went to bows that were all over the map that uh, didn't have a lot of staying power long term to this tort family who we have many of their bows around today because people of our ilk, of our kind, figured out how to make them an art form, something that could last for hundreds of years, just like our precious stringed instruments and 12-year-olds still ruin them. <laughs> to be clear, the bow itself is its own instrument and should not be thought less of. I had to throw that in there just to make up for my comments earlier. So Good, good save, Jerry. This episode of OMO is sponsored in part by House of Note Violin Shop in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. House of Note is a full-service violin shop serving the string community there since 1959. The team at House of Note wish everyone listening in this great community good health, safety, and a successful economic year. We're here today with Matt Wheeling of the far side of Kansas Wheeling Wheelings. Uh, he told us that uh, they used to be whaling, but now they're wheeling. Um, and Matt's a friend from Oberlin. Uh, he's, he's a mean cat on the mandolin, and he makes about the most beautiful bows in the world, if you want my unvarnished opinion. Um, so Matt got the bug to start making bows in 1991. Um, he took some New England school classes um, and then decided he should move to France and learn with the modern masters. There weren't a lot of opportunities here in the States for people to get proper training. Um, And Matt, you were a research chemist. What did that entail? It entailed going to a job every day and basically getting paid to hang out with people I didn't think were very nice. (laughs) So so you you moved to France. Uh, You got to work with the, the famous Benoit Roland. And then Georges Teffel, and it, uh, my my, as you know, my French is atrocious. So, please forgive me. That was great. Yes. Um, and then you came back to the United States, and you wrote for me with a bunch of wood, a great armoire, a few cases of cheap wine, and a French war bride and son in tow. There you go. These good. are the kinds of interviewees I need, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, so in 2002, you moved back to Minnesota or you, no, you're from Kansas. So this was the first time you guys landed in Minnesota. Well, I was born in Kansas, but I, we moved to Minnesota when I was five or six years old. Right on. And you are one of those cats that is no longer allowed to compete on planet earth. You've gotten five gold medals from the Violin Society of America. Um, and will you pronounce horse concourse for me, Matt? (laughs) 
The only place I've ever seen that phrase used is in the Violin Society of America. In America, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've never seen any French people calling it, so I suppose it's or concours. Nice. So you uh, you also won multiple awards. Um, the City of Paris Etienne Vatelot competition. Um, you got yeah, a that's big one. Yeah, that's huge, man. It's huge. Um, so twenty five years of this, and uh, in only twenty five years, an average of three years per bow, you've gotten so many gold medals that we don't want you to compete anymore. I'm told I can't. Yeah. Let mm-hmm. let the rest of them be. I was trying to explain to Rosie that when I see one of your bows, I'm often unaware of the details when I hand it back um, because they have they have a lot of schwung. They have a lot of their own energy and personality. The details all hold together really well. The details are, are very finely realized. Um, and I just really like your work, Matt. Well, thank you. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your process, how you go about making what a normal day is like for you, what kind of output you are are doing on a regular basis. Well, I'm self-employed and I work out of my house, so there isn't so much of a normal day. I, I wish I was better at saying I get to the bench at eight and I you know, take half an hour for lunch and there I am keeping going. I'm really not as disciplined as I should be. Because there's plumbing to do when you work for yourself. One of the things that I've gotten the habit of doing is is setting down a list of goals for the day and actually writing them down. Mm-hmm. And what I do is it used to be that I would think, okay, I really hope I can get this done, this done, this done. And at the end of the day, if those things can, didn't get done, I would think, God, I didn't do anything today. But what I do now is I set those things down as a, you know, I'll write down the list. I want to do this. And then as the day goes on, I write down the things that I actually did and cross them off to get that bit of satisfaction. Nice. <laughs> Without touching the original list sometimes. Yeah, yeah but, but you know, I, I don't end the day thinking, oh, God, I didn't get anything done. I Instead, I think, oh, look, a new potential client called and I took an hour and a half to ship a bow off to him. Yeah. This email had to be done today. Oh, I forgot it's July 1st and I better pay the credit card bills yeah. and the mortgage. You know, the ones that are going to affect the credit rating, I better deal with those today. You know, those are the sort of things that were on my list today. And I did about half the making that I was hoping to do, but you know, there are still important things that are work related that got done. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in a, in a great day, I'd take a really long walk with the dog, be at the bench by nine. Yeah. Uh, usually take a, I, I take a pretty lengthy lunch, uh, particularly in the summer, my kids were home and we we're trying to have as much of a family life as possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, that might be back to the bench by two and working from two until seven or eight and then starting to cook with the family. I got to say, I, I identify with you trying to squeeze everything into your day as possible, like making that list. And uh, my own battle with having my own business is trying to clear enough space away to think properly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's something that resonates with you. Well, and Rosie, you introduced me to like apps to align your your stuff and keep them organized. And I did, I have always done a version of what uh, Matt's talking about. I, I have a few chalkboards that I love that are old and I just keep lists up and, and spend the time to make myself feel like I'm not failing at everything. Yeah. Good, good for you. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, serious question time. Matt, how many things on the bow are endangered and what are you going to do about it? What the hell am I going to do about it, personally? (laughs) (laughs) Well, something that can be talked about for your, I I think your audience is a bit violin-centric and not bow-centric. I don't mean that in a bad way. And, um, you know, I'm not sure people understand, know much about the International Pernambuco Conservation Initiative, the IPCI. Mm-hmm. Maybe you guys have a vague idea of what that is. I, yes, vague is the accurate description. I'm friends with Vito. He told me. Yeah, Vito's very involved in it. Um, but it's, uh, it's something that started out in Paris in, I believe, 1999, when some people who had been involved in the tortoiseshell trade said, you know, they, they wiped out our tortoiseshell trade overnight they're going to come after Pernambuco next. You guys got to get organized. You have to do something. Yeah. And this, uh, this led into a pretty major organization that's done an awful lot of good things concerning reforestation of Pernambuco, a lot of research initiatives into what are the different, they're actually different species. Pernambuco's, we used to think that it was subspecies, but really there's two or three different tree types yeah. that are all classed as Pernambuco, but they're they're really, really different. Oh. A lot like ebony, yeah, across forests. So out of that organization um, grew the idea of maybe 10 years later, they said, okay, we, we've kind of got Pernambuco going here. You violin makers better get going and helping us with ebony because ebony is the next thing they're gunning for. Yeah. And so when people think, oh, the IPCI, that's really nice. But these initiatives have really come out of, grown out of the IPCI. The International bodies that regulate such things hold up the IPCI to other organizations and other trade groups as saying, these are some people who really got this going and doing well. Who did it right, yeah. At first, I kind of thought it was a little bit of a uh, PR thing. Oh, look, we really care. And then it got taken over by people who did really care. Nice. Yay. Nice. You know, it's a great thing. It's a really flat organization a lot of things will happen where someone will hear about something that needs to be done and and just make it happen. Mm-hmm. An example of that is that there was some farm in Brazil that was trying to do a bunch of reforestation. They didn't need to go and take a truck and drive quite a while to get a whole bunch of water, pay for the water, bring it back. If they could have just drilled a well, which would have cost them about two years worth of water, but they never had enough money to drill that well, You know, they would have been ahead for the rest of their life, basically. And a, a bowmaker heard about this, went around, organized a whole bunch of people. Hey, can you throw in somewhere between $100 and $400? A lot of people did it. They drilled a well. And now you've got this working farm. It's, that's a, a Pernambuco outfit. Wonderful. So it's a really good organization in a lot of ways. And that's the main thing. I mean, Pernambuco is the really important thing. I think you guys probably know that Ebony's potentially next on the block. Yeah. Um, ivory. Yeah. You know, obviously that's a problem. Who knows if they, you know, being the international regulatory bodies, what's going to happen with different types of shell that are used on the frog. And the shell, you know, it's it's just a decorative thing. It's not the most important thing. It can come from a lot of different species of, of mussels and, and clams all over the dang place, too. Yeah, but one of the problems is that because it can come from all these different sorts of shellfish, that means that if, if any one of those is banned you are going to have to prove that it's not that particular one. Oh. Yeah. Because if you have a border crossing agent who says, well, you need to prove to me that this is not, and then lists off the scientific name, you really don't have a way to prove that. 
So if even one species comes under fire, then the rest of it, yeah. you know, it, it becomes very, very difficult for a musician to travel. And not much recourse as a musician or an orchestra to ensure that the person who's looking at it actually is qualified to make that call. They, they just get to. I mean, we had this in, in D.C. recently. The NSO was going to do a, a whole Asian tour and dozens of bows came in that had real ivory tips, even some of them with, with uh, mammoth tips, which, you know, those come from fossil record stuff and are totally legal. And they all had all of the ivory replaced. They had replacement frogs put on. And then the pandemic hit. And after spending all of that money, none of the players no. got to go to Asia with their now not original bows, you know, and it was, oh. it was a complicated, uh, heartbreak for us in the shop and and for a lot of people who you know let me jump in and, and correct you on one thing you said there though please when you said uh fossilized mammoth or whatnot which is totally legal it's not totally legal really which is to say there are a number of states who said well you can't really tell ivory from mammoth so therefore mammoth is illegal as well wow. uh the ones that jump to mind that i'm pretty sure have that are new york state new jersey um california i think washington Okay, that's good to know. These are hard issues because I understand that. The greater good to some extent is is to make sure that these that animals aren't being killed for a, a, an industry's trade. But it's so arbitrary who the person is at the border who decides what is and isn't that making mammoth illegal as well probably saves them money in legal fees, you know? Yeah. The people in the U.S. who are involved in inspections and whatnot, they do not have an easy job yeah. because it's really hard for them to know every regulation. I believe there's 22 different bureaus of the United States or, you know, they, they, not, they have to know everything about alcohol. They have to know everything about yeah. ivory. They have to know everything about who knows what all. Mm -hmm. they, they have too many things to know everything about to know much about anything. Yeah, mm -hmm. which sounded like I'm being disrespectful to them, but I, what I'm really trying to do is, you know, kind of give them. They're overwhelmed. Uh -huh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I had a guy in fish and wildlife who would always check in with me when my wood came in from Croatia, and we became friendly over email eventually. And it's just like the, these things you require are crazy. You know that, right? And he's like, "Hey, it's a job." <laughs> so, uh, Matt, we talked previously a little bit about how bows have evolved over time. I know that from a violin perspective, I look at a bow and all I see is, okay, well, well Tort figured it out and the style has been settled since then. What are we missing? What other things have come about since that time that have modernized the bow that we're not catching? Well, Tort uh, was born in 1747 and died in 1835, I think, roughly. And he had a huge output and a huge influence. But right around, say, 1855, 1860 or so, the next bowmaker who made significant changes to the bow was uh, Francois-Nicolas Voiron. Voiron had worked at Viome's shop for a number of years, and when he left the employ of Viome, he did a number of changes to the bow. In particular, he sort of shortened the head heights and frog heights he completely changed the camber scheme of what was going on with the bow, mm -hmm. uh, which made it a much different sort of feel in your hand. And then the people coming after him, he had this huge influence to where 
you're really having to make a bow based on his style in order to be making a living for probably the next 80 years or so. So you've got Voron. Sitting next to Voron is the father, Lamy. So when I say sitting next to him, he is literally sitting next to him. <laughs> They're working together to make the Voron bow. Uh-huh. And there's one or two other employees, probably. Voron dies, I think, in 1870. Lamy goes off, and Lamy takes the Voron model and makes it a little bit beefier. And then around 1890, Sartori starts his own shop at the age of about 20. And he takes that model and makes it even a little bit more beefy mm-hmm. and stiff. And so that really became the way that bows were made up until maybe even like the 1950s, 1960s, when some other people started branching out. And when you say the phrase, he made the bow more beefy, what does that specifically mean? So specifically, the actual stick itself is, is becoming stiffer. Okay. The actual overall bow is becoming a little bit heavier. And stylistically, they're getting a little bit less, it's still considered a feminine bow, but they're a little bit less um, delicate looking in terms of their uh, overall stylistic. I remember coming into the bow room at Oberlin last year, sneaking in, and you guys had a bunch of slides up. They've got like the bow heads and the frogs, and you guys are saying, this one's masculine, this one's feminine. I had no idea what that meant. Could you help to define what that is? Sure. In a bow that's considered masculine, two things that you'll see quite often are that a lot of the angles are actual angles, whereas the feminine bow, you're going to have more curves than angles. Mm -hmm. It's a little hard to see from books and slides and whatnot. The feminine bows tend to be, the heads tend to be a little bit shorter. Okay. The frogs are a little bit smaller as well. Again, the, the frog's going to have some curves to it that you're not going to see on the in the masculine thing. There's going to be more corners. It kind of comes back to the idea of, because these are French terms, to the French, the ultimate femininity would be someone like Audrey Hepburn. Mm-hmm. It's going to be you know, someone a little bit petite. Uh, Audrey's not incredibly rounded out, but she's still you know not a sharply masculine sort of uh, presentation of a woman. And so that's your just two classic ways. Some of us in the last few years, I, I got more thinking, why can't we have a bow that takes the femininity of a more, keep those large, those curves happening, but every time there's a choice for a curve or an angle, I want to make it the largest curve I can possibly make it, mm. which is I don't want the Audrey Hepburn femininity as great as Audrey Hepburn is. I want to have a Marilyn Monroe. Some America curves. Night, a big 1950s pickup kind of bow yeah you know and um but when you get back into the classic idea of what is masculine and what is feminine again the 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 femininity aspect is going to be more like a petite five foot two sort of little black dress bow very crisp sharp chamfers and well i mean yeah i mean that's going to be on either bow that's going to be on a masculine bow or a feminine bow so did that help a little bit that's wonderful And I'm going to be looking for it now. Thank you. I was very lucky once to see a case full of torts from very earliest with the strange splayed heads. And then up toward the modern bow, there was this beautiful double faceted bevel behind the head that terminated into the tip. So that coming up out of the stick, 
and the underside of the head in the in the elbow there i know that's not the right word there was just simply a, a two facet plane down into it there were a few of them was that typical of a certain maker of the tort family and and when did that go out of style you know to be honest i don't know much about that it's really interesting i was giving a uh, a zoom lecture a couple days ago and that same question came up and i thought you know i haven't thought about that a huge amount yeah it has not it hasn't been done a whole lot it was uh, a little bit sort of before the modern bow really happened yeah but then every now and then you'll see a maker who's taking that and and going back and revisiting that. It can be a really beautiful look. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what that means. You want to become a bow maker and you decide to go to France. Why France? Why is that a big deal? How does it transform your life? The reason to go to France is the same reason that if you got into violence, you'd think, ah, I got to go to Cremona. That's where the bow was developed. That's where the tradition comes out of, of, of really everything. It's a little bit of a... Uh, a niche as well as saying, you know, here, I, I have gone to the source to figure this out, to, to get the absolute best thing you can get going. The thing about going there to learn from it is there's almost this recipe for what you do. As long as you're holding the tool correctly, holding the work correctly, you're, you're 80% toward making a good object. Mm-hmm. All this work comes out of uh, factory work in Mirkor, where they had to learn how to work quickly they had to learn how to work reasonably effectively efficiently and you know make a product that's going to come out pretty good and over you know a million man hours at least people just learned oh if you hold the tool this way and the material this way even an idiot can make something reasonably good Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to be perfectly sharp it'll still get the job done if you know yeah but the i mean the bigger thing is you know this is Mirkor is a small town. It's 8,000 people, and they've got these factories that I don't know how many people they're employing, but they didn't have a huge talent pool to draw from. Uh-huh. Some of the people were incredibly talented. Most of them were reasonably talented. Some were not talented. But if you followed this this method, you you could take someone who is even sort of middle of the road, pretty good talented, and turn them into a pretty good worker. Yeah. So if you, it's a huge advantage to say, oh, I'm going to take advantage of uh, a million man hours of refining these techniques and it's just going to get handed to you as long as your ears are open mm-hmm. it's going to get handed to you as long as you you know don't make a yeah actually you can make a fool of yourself but you can't make a jerk of yourself <laughs> and still let you let you be there that sounds pretty relaxing i like the idea of the method being most of the the hill to climb that's one of the most convincing arguments that I've ever heard for going to school. Yeah. And then one of the nice things about it is uh, the way that I learned, this all comes out of the, uh, there was a, a bow making school in Mirkor from roughly 1972 to 1981. And they had, I believe right around 20 graduates from that school, maybe 17 or so. And I, I learned from two people who had gone to that school. Benoit Roland was the first graduate of the school. He's the first person I worked with. George mm. Teppel was the final graduate. And they, they were all learning from a man named Bernard Ushar. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I see anyone who has either trained in that school or been taught by those people, you know, I can sit down at someone else's bench and use their tools and be reasonably confident that I could turn something out. Yeah. It's nice to have your own tools, but it's it's really neat to go work in someone else's shop, sit down, 
there's definitely variance in, in what ends up because you're going to take this basic training and you're always improving your little bits and you're learning things. For example, you're going to Oberlin and picking up two or three really cool things every year. And that's changing. But when you get back in touch with someone who's been trained through that school or someone, you know, just like the, the grandson mm-hmm. um, through that, it, so many things are similar. It's, it's just really neat to, to go work with people. Yeah, that's great. So tell us how America and American violin making is different than, than the European tradition. What, what do you see? What has changed even if the, you know, the excellence is, is there from a different angle? Well, first of all, I'm going to jump back. You said, tell me about American violin making. I'm assuming we're talking American bow making. Damn it. Damn it, Chris. <laughs> oh, I, just, I just, like, disrespected your tribe. I'm, I'm sorry, man. It all comes back to violin, doesn't it? <laughs> Once we get done with this bow interview, we can have a good time. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the big things is just that American makers, in general, sort of had to figure this stuff out on their own. Once Oberlin started, uh, they were typically bringing over one or two French makers per year and having those people, you know, people would just be grouped around these guys' benches trying to watch everything that they did. And so that was a real big step forward. Um, The original training for most of the people was working with Bill Salco. Bill had gone to France on a Fulbright grant in 1959, 1960, I'm not quite sure. Mm. And worked there for nine months and picked up quite a bit of stuff. Bill is a, you know, he's the grandfather of, of almost all American making. Yeah. And incredible person, really good bone maker, incredible presence. Um, really incredible in so many ways. It all grows out of Bill having done that. And then people learning from Bill. Other people are organizing Oberlin, recognizing that the way that Bill had learned, that's still kind of available to us if we can get some of these French guys over. Yeah. Do you know my friend Jean Granberger? I know Jean well. Petit Jean. Petit Jean. I miss, I miss Jean. He was, uh, there was briefly a bow making school um, yep. in Salt Lake City where he came to be the teacher and he would come in and very loudly whistle jazz tunes while he went to the restroom because he did not want to close the door because he didn't want to touch the handle that everybody touched. So that's how we knew Jean was in the bathroom. (laughs) He's one step ahead of all of us. Yeah. COVID, man. Matt, why are your bows the best bows and how long do I have to wait on your wait list to get one? One of the really incredible things about bow making right now is that the level is so high. There's no way I would ever say my bows are the best bows. But the level of bow making right now is as high as it has ever been. Amen. I'm I'm really willing to say that. And particularly, it's, you know, if you had to throw a caveat in that, you might say it's as high as it's been since 1920. Right on. Um, And maybe even a little bit farther back than that. There are a lot of really good bow makers out there working. Go visit your local bow maker. Give me a call if you like. But, um... You know, it's it's really incredible the level that it's at right now. Do you want to tell everyone your cell phone number so they can contact you directly? That'd be fine. Uh, <laughs> the website is finebows.com. Excellent. Finebows.com. And why is Matt Wheeling such a good... It's not just the sweaters that my kids wear that came from your beautiful kids... It's not just singing Beatles tunes at 1 a.m. at Oberlin. Why is Matt Wheeling such a good time? 
you know, we were, I was discussing this uh, with my son. What, what is the opposite of bon vivant? <laughs> um, yeah, because that's what I feel like lately is a, like a, a bon mordant. Bon mordant. <laughs> um, this comes back to how great a thing that Oberlin is. Everyone's on their best slash worst behavior. Mm-hmm. And, True. and, you know, I laugh more in two weeks at Oberlin than I do the entire rest of the year, which is kind of a sad commentary on my life. But yeah, you kind of save it up and it becomes your your calendar. Like you're waiting for the school year as a little kid again. It's it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Matt Wheeling, thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving the world your beautiful bows. And I uh, appreciate your time. Well, it's both a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, a, it's, a, it's such an honor to sit down at my bench and think, I don't know why, but for some reason, I'm able to make a living doing this. It's just great. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers, man. I light a candle at the bench every time I sit down in order that I just take a moment to say thank you to whatever deity there is or isn't that's allowing this to happen. That's really nice, Matt. Hey, thanks, man. That's great. Yeah. Have a lovely evening. You and your family stay healthy, man. Bye, Rosie. Bye. Take care. And this is the Coda. The Welcome back, guys. Uh, I've got Chris and Jerry again, and we are doing two truths and a lie. So what we're going to do now is we're going to bring to you, Homo sapiens, a repair that everybody does. Two of us will be telling you the truth and how we conduct this repair, and one of us will be lying and you don't get to know until I think we're going to maybe announce if we feel like it a couple weeks later on Instagram, or you might just have to wait till next month. We haven't sorted that out. Our first encounter with two truths and a lie. How do you take the top plate off a violin, viola, or cello? So you get old butter knives, preferably Civil War butter knives, and you sharpen them until they can really take the skin off a squirrel's nuts. And then you jam them in between the rib and the plate, and you tap them in with a hammer, and then you get a wedge of hardwood, and you tap that in next to the knife, and then you get another knife, and you put it on the other side of the wedge, and eventually it goes... like inch by inch, and you just jam those knives around the top, just cutting it right off with your little hammer. Sometimes you squirt water or alcohol into the crack and let it just run around, you know. Uh, Other people, you know, they use just the hammer and not the wedge, but uh, it's really important to have a lot of stuff that you're really, like, you know, getting into the crevice. Is that your submission? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'd like to reiterate that you need to get into the crevice. Please get into the crevice. Yes, thank you. All right, all right. So I have a selection of maybe like three knives that I use, and some are skinnier and some are thicker. And I will get some apple cider vinegar. I will get a brush to fit in there, and then and then get out my heat gun, and um, and just you know just kind of like put it right along the cracks, mm-hmm. and and. Uh, be careful not to make the varnish bubble up and just like take turns with one knife after another, after another with my apple cider vinegar. Wait, you use a heat gun? Absolutely. To take the top I off? Do. The apple cider vinegar? That's how I do this. Wow. 
I'm I'm trying it. I'm trying it. Next. That's your submission. <sighs> Sherry. Sherry, just play with us. Come on. He's too honest. Well come on. The cleanest top and back removal I ever did was I chucked a cello out of a first floor <laughs> uh, window. And it landed uh, on the end block on McAdam and the top and back neatly cleaved off and left the rib structure standing wow. straight in the middle. That's amazing. Yeah, I do it all the time now. It's your go-to. 100% go-to. Okay. Oh, that's great. That's your submission? That's my submission. A confiscation of bows will follow you to your rest. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was fun. Do you have something to contribute? Email us at mail at omopod.com or reach out to us on Instagram at omopodcast and look for our Facebook page, which is Omopod. Action. Hotbow action. Don't forget to tag us on Instagram as well with hashtag omopod. If something reminds you of the story this week, go ahead and tag us. Nice. Do it. You guys are what make this show great. Thank you for being our guests. Thank you. Thank you for fellow shopping Thank us. Thank you for fellow shopping. Thank you for calling in with ideas, contributing stories. We could not do this you. without you. Homo sapiens. Yes. And uh, final note from our researcher, Linda Lespay, who asks, what would you call a grouping of musical instruments? Like a colony of bats, a gaggle of geese, a convocation of eagles. What would you call a collection of cellos? A chumper slump of cellos. A squelch of violas. A plucktard of violins. A confiscation of bows. Mm. Give us one, Jerry. Y you know, the World War Three is happening outside my house right now. I'm just <laughs> tapped out. A little bit of heavy arm armament and you lose your ability to improvise i see yeah, pretty, pretty much all right i love you guys i, I need some cbd <laughs> good night guys all right good night rosie good night jerry hi chris good night omos omo is an all luthier podcast produced by rosie deloach chris jacoby and jerry lynn the show is edited by jason peoples music by invoke sound if you enjoy our show you can help us out by leaving an itunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Thanks for listening.